0: Uh, there's, there's probably about two kinds of people on this sort of thing. Uh, there are people who are basically like, oh, this is nothing, this is hype, the government, Donald Trump, Fox News, or MSNBC, you know, just just conspiracy, you know, it just doesn't even really exist, you know, and then you got, I mean, these are two ends of the spectrum. And then you got people who are kind of like, well, this is the end of the world. I'm going to go buy all the toilet paper at Costco. Um which is what I would do. <laughs> uh, and that's what, that's what most of the good memes are about right now, actually. Uh, and so I just want to speak to us as Christians uh, about both of those things. There's, uh, there's this kind of this popular thing that many of you have probably seen already called flatten the curve. And uh, that's what this is really about. I'm a public school teacher, and I don't have to go to work next week. Woo! But uh, I might have to go to work an extra week in June. Woo! So uh, this curve, you guys got that graph. So uh, if you haven't seen this already, you've probably buried your head in the sand, but, uh, or you just don't care, which is absolutely fine, too. Um, so uh, this curve on the y-axis, which would be like the vertical side uh, on the left, uh, you have number of cases per day. And then on the x-axis, you have days since the first case. And so... If we, uh, this this virus is real, you know, it is um, more concerning than your average flu. So people are, some people are saying, oh, it's just, it's just the flu. Everybody's getting way too excited. It's a little more serious than the flu. Um, in China, the death rate. Of people who they actually tested that had the virus and there's some question of whether like people who don't get very sick don't go get tested but the death rate is probably somewhere between one and three percent of people who get this and that's that's about ten times more than a seasonal flu so a seasonal flu is going to kill about point one percent of people who get it and so I, I think the the real uh, number might come down to one percent after like the whole country gets tested eventually but So it's a a pretty uh, strong flu, but it's not an influenza virus. It's a coronavirus. So it's a new kind of virus that we're not as uh, used to. And so it's worth paying attention to because it is a little more lethal than the average virus. But grand scheme of things, you're not going to die from the coronavirus. I mean, unless you are immunosuppressed and, you know, uh, 60 plus. The stats are you're probably going to just get a cold and get better, and that's all it's going to be. And so there are people who are like, this is no big deal, it's just a cold, and they're not wrong, okay? And then there's people who are really panicked and freaked out, and they're, they're probably a little uh, too worried, okay? But there is, there is this happy place in the middle. And so if we didn't do anything, the dotted line is what hospitals can handle. And so... Um, if we don't do anything, then everybody gets sick kind of all at once. Like in three months, everybody gets it, and like 97% of people get better, no big deal. But somewhere around 10% of people who get it will probably need some sort of medical intervention, whether it's just antibiotics to treat pneumonia, or whether it's something a little more intense like getting on a respirator and being in the hospital for a couple of weeks. And so if everybody, in three months, if everybody goes to the hospital, the hospital becomes overwhelmed and then somebody has a a mild heart attack that would normally be something they could quickly get treatment for and not be too affected by, that might become a life-threatening thing because now there's there's no beds at the hospital. There's no treatment available for regular medical issues. Also, you would see a death rate higher from the coronavirus if nobody got medical intervention versus if there was plenty of medical intervention available for everyone, the death rate would be lower. in the lighter blue graph, you might have a death rate 5 or 6 percent, whereas in the lower blue graph, I'm guessing the death rate's going to come down to like 1 percent. So even though most of us are not going to get sick, or sorry, are not going to get hurt, you know, we get sick, we get a cough, we get a fever, it's a respiratory illness, um, we'd get better and it wouldn't be that big of a deal. But for the sake of other people, it is good that we, we practice social distancing. So with protective measures, We we can keep the graph under what the healthcare system can handle. And if you did the math, this is a little calculus for you nerds out there, Jenny. Um, the, The area under a graph is, you use calculus to find the area under a graph. In this graph, the area under the graph is the total number of people who will get the disease. If you were to find the area under the light blue graph versus the area under the dark blue graph, they probably have about the same area. So either way, about the same number of people get the disease. But if you spread it out over time, the hospitals can handle it. If you do it all at once, the hospitals are overwhelmed. Okay? That's what that dotted line is really trying to show you. And so Rory's not going to die of the coronavirus. He's a healthy young stallion. Okay? Not, even, not even quite to 40 years yet. So he's going to get the coronavirus, he's going to get sick. But if Rory walks around kissing everybody and licking them on the cheek like he normally does. Then they might give it to somebody who gives it to somebody who gives it to somebody, and pretty soon it's everywhere, and then the hospitals can't handle the demand that's there. And so what Rory could do, as the loving stallion that he is, is he could practice social distancing, okay? So he could do a little less... physical touch with everyone that he sees, and and really the government has started to step in and say, hey, we're going to mandate social distancing. So schools are closing, and, and, you know, even like other organizations like uh, the NCAA and NBA, you know, everybody's getting on the bandwagon. And so by doing that, it's going to be long-term a little bit, like, disruptive to everybody's lives, um, but—sorry, small picture, a little disruptive to your life. Big picture, less people will die. And so uh, as a Christian, how do you look at this? I think as Christians, we should have a very other focused position. So rather than being like, okay, so we're going to hunker down for a few months. I got to go buy all the toilet paper and all the rice and all the beans and everything. And just me and my family, myself, me, me, me. Instead of Christians being kind of focused on ourselves, especially those of us who are totally like healthy people. Like we really need to be focused on what other people need. You know, we may have a friend, some of us, like me, I don't have to go to work for a couple of weeks now, and it might might get extended a little further, but I have friends who maybe they work in the medical field, and they're going to need a little extra support around the house, or maybe um, you have, you know, neighbors who are elderly, you know, and you want to like, you know, at the social distancing, but also, hey, do you need any firewood? Somebody texted me today, hey, can we help out people with firewood, you know, and so like... Anything that we can do for others right now, I think, is a really good balance between these two ideas. Um, rather than just, like, I'm healthy, I'm going to get better. How about I'm healthy, I can help other people, you know? And rather than this is the end of the world, like, hey, my, my world isn't this world. My home is in heaven. Uh, you know, I don't need to panic. Like, you don't—if you're a Christian and you're panicked, that's kind of silly because, like, God's got you, okay? And he knows the number of your days. And he's going to let you die when you're going to die. And you you need to put your hope and your trust in him right now and just say, what can I do for other people instead of looking at yourself? And so whichever side of that you're on, I think uh, focusing on the needs of others right now and being sensed. So this is sort of not don't focus on your needs, focus on the needs of others. And this is sort of like uh, don't don't act like it doesn't matter because to some people it does matter. And so both, both extremes really need to get their eyes off themselves and get their eyes on other people and, and how you can serve and love other people in this. I, I took a graph like this, and this is kind of what's been in my heart about this graph is like, this is a good way to love your neighbor right now. To, to be on board with protective measures is to love your neighbor and to show them that you care about them. And I think, and I, I imagine Rory's going to get much more into this. But I think the other thing that's really exciting about this time right now, because like I said, you know, I'd be surprised if anyone in this room is going to be, um, you know, killed by the coronavirus. It's really pretty and insignificant thing. The world's, there's a little bit of overreacting going on, but, but there's some wisdom in it, right? But at the same time, this is shaking people. And if you don't have a foundation in Jesus Christ, and like, like I sang this song today, I sang this song today And like this is a Christian worldview um, My body might be dying But I'll always be alive You know like this This coronavirus This When the world gets shook You know they're gonna, they're gonna freak They're gonna panic Or they're gonna be selfish And they're gonna go buy everything But when a Christian gets shook You know hopefully we're gonna spill God's love on people Because that's what we're full of You know and so like I have a totally rock-solid worldview that already told me this is totally plausible and could happen, and it doesn't change a thing I know about God. Like, this is not my home, and I think Rory's going to talk on this more, but, like, I live in a world that is cursed. Like, literally, we live in a world that has fallen and cursed. And so, like, we shouldn't be surprised when some terrible or not-so-terrible Uh, you know, virus spreads through the world because like we live in a a fallen world and we're looking forward to a day when God is going to fix these things. The third verse in this song, when the age of death is over and this world has been reborn, you know, and like we are living in a fallen world and we're all dying. Okay. And it's, people are surprised that like suddenly there's a virus that's increasing the death rate a little bit, but like we're all going to die. Okay. 10 out of 10 people die. I have a friend that used to say that when we would evangelize on the streets, you know, and it's like we're all suffering from this curse right now. When you become a Christian, you don't stop dying. You're still in a cursed body, right? And so like, okay, yeah, a little bit more dying this year, a little bit less dying next year, whatever, you know, like this isn't my home. I'm looking forward to the day when I'm not in this world anymore, right? And so we have a totally rock solid worldview that makes total sense of this situation. And so when we are around other people and we're not coughing on them or touching them, we can still tell them about how there's this total hope that we have because of because of our Christian faith and because of who Jesus claimed to be and what God says is true. And so um, anyway, love people well the next month and uh, be focused on others. Don't be focused on yourself, whether it's You don't want your life disrupted or you're panicking and thinking only of yourself. Focus on others instead. Okay? And uh, I don't know if that made any sense to you because it was pretty spontaneous.
1: Okay. (laughs) Thanks, Johnny. I think we're done here today. That's about all we needed, right? You're supposed to be like, no, more. Like, I think you're right. All right, uh, guys, we are going to go to Luke chapter 21. What a crazy two months it's been observing all of this. And uh, this kind of wrote an order in my mind of a lot of what we've seen. Uh, It's like January 7th or something was the discovery of this virus over there in China, kind of in that meat market area. Rapid spread, mass hysteria. And then soon after came mass mockery of those who had mass hysteria, mass production of hilarious memes, Uh, hoarding of toilet paper and hand sanitizer, global pandemic stock market crash, travel restrictions, stopping of large gatherings, school closures, trip cancellations, countries on lockdown. So Lindsay and I took a little bit of the free time that we've had um, in the last month that we ended up having yesterday and we watched the movie Contagion. And uh, it was like, This is everything we've been seeing, sort of, you know, kind of an interesting, it's like we're watching a a movie or a novel unfold right before our eyes. But really, when we look at the scriptures, it's not totally new stuff to the world. But as you look in Luke 21, this is the Olivet Discourse. We've studied it quite a bit recently in our Revelation and Eschatology. Um, This is Luke's version of it where Jesus, uh, well, before Jesus speaks there, him and his disciples are cruising around the temple Mount. Uh, and it says as some, then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, these things, which you see the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him saying, teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? So you got the disciples and they're totally enamored with what's going on around them, just with the success of their culture and just the amount of money that's come in for the temple and how beautiful it is. And Jesus says, you guys are missing the big picture here. In fact, something pretty severe is going to happen where not one stone from the temple is going to be left standing upon one another. Now, Matthew's gospel brings it down to that. They ask three questions. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so Jesus goes on on the uh, Mount of Olives. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. And he gives just like these things are going to take place here. And then to also answer your question, these are some signs that will be, uh, preceding my coming back. And here will be some signs about the end of the age. Uh, So they, uh, and so verse eight says, take heed that you do not be deceived for many will come in my name saying, I am he. The time is drawn near. Therefore do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified for these things must come to pass first But the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. And so uh, today we're not going to go into all of these different signs uh, and symbols, um, things that are going to take place. Because we've already done that recently, you know, a few months ago. Uh, so you can get on our revelation series and and start watching on YouTube or listening online. Um, but he does go through things and, and that are going to be getting worse and worse, more severe and more frequent as his arrival gets closer and closer. Um, and then verse 12 says, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore settle in your hearts, not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer for. I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost by your patience, possess your souls. So Jesus is telling the disciples that it's actually going to get a whole lot worse before um, my kingdom comes. Okay. And there's going to be some signs of things that are going to happen before I come. It's only going to get worse. Um, Matthew's gospel says it this way in the Olivet Discourse, chapter 24, verse 8. All of these things are the beginning of sorrows. So all those things that we just listed, wars and rumors of wars and antichrist, false Christ coming on the scene, famines and pestilences and persecution, all of these things are the beginning, just the beginning of sorrows and the the literal translation of that word sorrows is is that all these are the beginning of birth pains. Okay, so just as a, a woman uh, is pregnant and she goes into labor, things are getting, you know, it starts out that the baby is the size of a cell and then is bigger and bigger and he's the size of a pea and a lima bean and then bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And, bigger. and you know, there's different signs and movements. And all of a sudden your shirt's wiggling around, you know, and you're feeling pains and you know, all the way up to your water bursts and you know, you're in the hospital and and boop, out comes this little bundle of joy, right? Um that's what ours sound like every time it's like boop oh oh I wasn't even oh uh," and we're in the living room and it's like Whoa, I didn't even know you're pregnant. Okay. Anyways (laughs) then lifetime channel calls and it's this whole thing. But uh But so, you know, we talked about this in Revelation, all these signs, you know, it started out uh, thousands of years ago. And the studies are that they're getting more and more, uh, you know, earthquakes and famines and pestilences and all these things. It's like the the baby is coming and it was just the beginning of these birth pangs. And Romans chapter 8 verse 18 gets into this about. The sufferings of this present time and kind of in the context, verse 17 was talking about, uh, yeah, we all want to be, you know, inheritors of Christ, but we don't really want to suffer with him. And so it says, yeah, well, you'll definitely indeed so be inheritors of Christ if indeed you suffer with him. And so it's kind of on that theme of persecution, but doesn't eliminate a lot of the other suffering and tough stuff we go through in this world. And 18 goes on in Romans 8. I'm like feeling myself touch my face. and I'm like, I'm doing everything that we're not supposed to do. I never even have facial itches. It's just in the brain, right? And it says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So as you're weighing out all the rough stuff that we go through in our life, like all the glory that we're going to have in Jesus, it just, boom, that scale just super tips and all the tough stuff in our life. It just, it can't even be weighed. It's not even worthy to be compared. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And so kind of that little section there speaks of that, um, all of the suffering and all of the things that are effects of the fall of man and the sinful condition of man, all of our rebellion that has led to all of the wickedness in this world, all of the wars, all of the genocides, all the rapes, murders, molestations, all of the diseases and cancers and plagues and all of these things, uh, you know it, our sin brought this and creation was subjected to it. And actually, it says it wasn't subjected to it willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. It was a divine judgment of God that this judgment upon a sinful earth would take place. But there's actually good news. There's hope that that would be redeemed as well. So we're living in this time where we are seeing creation subjected to futility, to disease, to pestilences, to wars, earthquakes, all of these things. And it says that all of creation is eagerly waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. And the language speaks of it, that all of creation is craning its neck, waiting for God to come back and even to come back with his people. Because even creation knows that that God has redeemed it through his blood and he's going to make all things new. So anything kind of in your life that you can just go, these are all um, signs of the curse and of the fall. So, the coronavirus and people that are affected by it, um, you know, diseases and cancers and plagues and weeds and, you know, hornets and all of those things like it makes all the world go, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Okay? And so uh, it says in verse 23, not only that, and by the way, did you notice the word birth pangs? So, uh, it's, it's the same way. It's like we're groaning like a woman in labor for the Lord to come back. Not only that, we who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Johnny was saying it just now, like my body might be dying, but I'll always be alive. So come Lord Jesus, come quickly. <clears throat> for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope? For what he sees. You order the package on Amazon, you can't wait for it to get there. Oh my gosh, it's gonna be the best day in the world. And the doorbell rings, and the package is left on the, and then you pick it up, and whatever. Maybe you don't even open it. Have you ever gotten the package in it? You just put it on the counter. You're so excited for to get there. Now you've got it. Well, what do I have to hope for now? I mean, it's already here. So while we're waiting for the Lord, we're just like, come on, Lord, come on. Uh, but if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. First Thessalonians 5 also uses that phrase, birth pangs. Now, I kind of want to uh, narrow it down to that part of the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is says that pestilence will increase, okay? So there was everything from anti, more and more antichrists will come on the scene claiming to be Jesus or false gospels coming on the scene that you don't need Jesus, you need my way. More and more of that's happened over the centuries. Uh, maybe even um, more and more earthquakes, the studies are. And um, and then in, in this case, just in our text here, pestilence is used. Now, interesting, Matthew's gospel says pestilence, but that's not in the original manuscript for Matthew, Uh, the the majority text uh, doesn't use that. So I went to Luke's gospel that it is in the original. And the only two places where you'll even find this word pestilence is in Matthew's Olivet Discourse, uh, which isn't in the original, at least it's not in the NU and uh, in Luke's gospel. So it's this word pestilence, pestilence. Uh, you look up the word and it just says a pest. Okay. There's something to your body and it's just, it's a pest. Okay. Now in Exodus, we go back to the Hebrew and we have a similar version of pestilence in Exodus five, three. So this is when Moses and Aaron are asking Pharaoh to let God's people go. So they say, Hey, the God of the Hebrew people has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord, our God, lest he fall on us with pestilence and with the sword. So God wants us out, man. Like, don't, don't make him punish us because you won't let us go. We don't want this pestilence. Now the dictionary for the Hebrew word pestilence here, like the definition is bubonic plague. Okay. Uh, And so it was like, Back then, it was just known as this black death is what the bubonic plague spoke of in the, say, the dark ages, the 1300s and such. And so uh, you see it again in in, uh, Exodus 15, which we won't go into (coughs) the Exodus 15 one for the sake of time. No, we will. (coughs) We will. Does he even know what he's doing? Um, No. No, I don't. Okay. (coughs) (coughs) Okay. Okay, I have water. Thank you, Casey. I just should probably drink it. <laughs> hear you loud and cl- loud and clear, Casey. So Exodus fifteen twenty-five. by the way, this is residual. This is like months of this going on. <clears throat> okay, I'm just emotional is what it is. Just don't leave yet, okay? Just hear me out. <laughs> Exodus fifteen twenty five. So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree which he cast into the waters. The waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them and said, "So this is the children of Israel have left Egypt, and they needed water, but the water was bitter. So they threw um, that stick there into the water. The waters were made sweet. And then the Lord says to the children of Israel, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight," give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes i will put none of the diseases on which you've brought which i've brought on the egyptians for i am the lord who heals you so there's this covenant made like hey if you obey and keep my commands then none of those diseases and pestilences and plagues, and the word here is different, it's not pestilence, it's disease, and it means sicknesses and disease. None of those things will come on you. And So what we want to do when we go through life circumstances and situations, we want to apply the gospel to them. And one of the first things of the gospel is that God made us to know him and to walk with him in the garden. And there was shalom, there was peace, but then we rebelled against God in the garden. We did it our way. We did it with our wisdom. And then that brought the curse upon the world. Okay. Uh, creation was subjected to futility at that point. And so then we, then we see the Lord pursuing us and training our mind to look at how we don't want to obey him, and we won't obey him. And he even gives us some opportunities. He says, if you'll obey, none of these diseases will come. And the children of Israel would always be like, totally going to obey, totally going to obey. We'll do it. Amen, everyone, amen. And the whole nation would say, amen, we'll obey. And literally in the next breath, they disobey the Lord, they start worshiping idols and committing sexual immorality. And so there's this pattern that shows through the Old Testament, you can't on your best day Live righteously enough to be in my presence. Okay. Now, some of the consequences of that is that disease and pestilence, bubonic plague, the dark ages come upon us. Leviticus says it another way. I'll walk among you and I'll be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You should not be their slaves. I've broken the bonds of the yoke and made you walk upright. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgment so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. You guys, you know, I don't think there's a lot going on here in our group, but, you know, to blame China for this coronavirus, you know, is ridiculous in the sense that it's on us. It's on every one of us since Adam, because we have rebelled against God. We have chosen our own ways. We've done what is right in our own eyes, which has always been opposite of what is right in God's eyes. And these wasting diseases has, have come upon us. Those are That's the bad news, okay? That's the bad news. Now, Matthew is our text, or I'm sorry, Luke 21 is our text for the day, and we're going to come back to it because there's some little words of hope in there from Jesus. <clears throat> but I want to go to Psalm 91 real quick because Psalm 91 shows how the Lord is there in the midst of all of this. The Lord is there in the midst of what plague is rightly due us you know when you think about um how many babies we abort you know every day as a nation uh the sexual immorality the raising of our heel against the lord the biting of our thumb against the lord the shrugging of the shoulders against god the outright just forgetting of our god um you know our nation deserves this but apparently the whole world you know, this is, this is creation subjected to futility, not just China, not just Iran, uh, not just Italy or South Korea, but the United States is going through this. And so what do we do in this bad, harsh time? Well, Psalm 91 says, he who dwells in the secret place of the most high God shall abide under the shadow of the almighty I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. So when these times come, it's a prompting to us. It's even a discipline for us to run to the Lord, to run into his shelter, to run into his refuge and to trust in him. Verse three of Psalm 91 says, surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings, you shall take refuge. Uh, I've read that in barn fires that <clears throat> after they go through the rubble, sometimes they find mother hens with their chicks underneath her wings and she'll be Kentucky fried. You know, that's not very sensitive. She'll have laid her life down sacrificially and been burnt to a crisp and, and but they'll pick her up. And underneath her are the the chicks and they're alive and she's protected them. It's a great picture of the gospel, right? But but here he just says, I'll cover you with my feathers and you can take refuge under these wings. His truths will be your shield and your buckler. You shall not be afraid of terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side. It's easy to bring application, right, in this day. And 10,000 by your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you've made the Lord who is my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, the Lord says, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he's known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. Verse 16, it's the last verse, with long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Okay? Incredible song. all right? Many times it says, in the midst of the trial, come into me for refuge, okay? And in that, there's a lot of really sweet, hope-filled sentences for us, all right? He'll deliver you from the perilous pestilence in verse 3. <clears throat> in verse 6, the pestilence that walks in darkness, Verse seven: Thousand people could fall at your side or 10,000 people falling at your right hand. It wouldn't come near you. Verse 10, no plague shall come near your dwelling. Verse 14, the Lord says, because this person in the midst of all this, he set his love upon me, I'm going to deliver him. I'm going to set him on high because he's known my name. 16, great, great word of hope. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation These are incredible songs of hope to sing to the Lord. Now, when you understand Bible interpretation, it helps with probably some of your first thoughts like, oh, cool. No Christian is going to get the coronavirus. Right? Yeah, wrong. Okay. Um, Oh, yeah, sweet. Like, I'll never die. Like, sort of, if you know the gospel, sort of. Okay. Because this is poetry and there's interpretation rules to use. These are songs that were written kind of after the battle and after the pestilences and songs of God's great faithfulness in the midst of trials. These are things that even can be looked forward in a future sense that that sometimes this is how the Lord works in a way to glorify himself, to work out his holy will, and to work out something good in our lives. But it's not every time. Um, It's not so much a promise as a poem with hope in it. Adoniram Judson, this incredible missionary to the Burmese, had two wives die of horrific disease in his youth. Uh, John Patton's wife died young. David Brainerd was this incredible circuit preacher uh, in the 1700s that uh, just a guy that I want to be like uh, to the Native Americans. And he died of a horrific, uh, I think it was a stomach illness. Maybe it was lungs, somewhere in this area. Um, But it it was really bad and um and yet you know he probably knew this psalm and trusted in the lord but the lord is working out something far greater for our good and for his glory and it's not always being delivered from the pestilence psalm 103 says that he is one who forgives all of our iniquities and he heals all of our diseases that's also a hope-filled psalm going through times where maybe pestilence or disease is around. When Jesus came on the scene in the early gospels, Mark 1 34, he healed many who were sick with diseases. And that was a sign that he was the Messiah and that you should hear him. So we have this interesting dichotomy, a paradox going on in this life. Okay. And it is that we have sinned against God and fallen short of his glory And yet he is there in the midst of it, even in the discipline and maybe the punishment towards sin. He's in the midst of it bringing light and life and hope and redemption through his son, Jesus, who would eventually come and take on all of this himself. He was going to become a man and he's going to dwell among us and he's going to know the sufferings that we know. He knows what it's like to go through times of sickness and disease and plague and hunger and coldness and homelessness and and have friends betray him and to be accused when he's innocent and to be murdered and, and to be betrayed by his own friends in the house of his friends. Like he's not a God who's sitting on a beach chair somewhere sipping on lemonade, you guys. He has come and he knows what we're going through. That's what makes him, the book of Hebrews says, it makes him better than an angel. He's not an angel. He's better than an angel. Because no angel knows what it's like to partake of what the, the man condition is. But Jesus and does, and because of that, he's a faithful high priest, and he intercedes for us. He's a ready help in time of need, and we can call upon the Lord. He's a ready help for us. So that's a little hope and a little understanding in light of the gospel of the pestilences and how they may get more and more as the, t- the day of the Lord draws near. Now let's go back to that Luke 21, Olivet it discourse, end times um, sermon by Jesus. But let's look at verse, uh, verse 13. <clears throat> now this, the, the immediate context is that The persecution and being delivered up by uh, brothers, sisters, moms, friends, uh, being brought before kings and authorities, arrested for the gospel. That's the immediate context, but I think there's some broad context to everything that's happening in this end times discourse where it says, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. What we're going through is a disembarking point to be witnesses of the gospel and the hope that is in Jesus. When pestilence comes, it will turn out. I like that, don't you? It'll turn out for you as an occasion, as an opportunity to be a witness. And Paul himself would say when he was arrested uh, in Rome, when he wrote to the Philippians, uh, he says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it's become evident to the whole palace guard and all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident in my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's going through persecution, and he says, this is crazy. It's like the more I'm suffering, the more the gospel's advancing. And we can look at that in the same light. You know, my dad, uh, he was my age when he got Hodgkin's disease. Had, a, you know, I've, I've told this story before, and I don't have time to get into it today, but long story short, grapefruit-sized tumor wrapped between his heart and his lungs, Uh, Went in for chemotherapy, shrunk it down to the size of a a golf ball, and then it started growing again. So they said, you've got to get to Stanford University, and you've got to have a bone marrow transplant. So they shocked him with uh, radiation. He would get so much radiation that it would burn his his arms and his chest and his mouth. and, uh, And the intense chemotherapy, they had to prep him for a bone marrow transplant. They call it dying to live. And they basically bring you to the point of death. So that they can, you know, put the the healthy cells back into you, and and he would go after the bone marrow transplant would appear to be healthy again, and then he would have another and another reoccurrence to where they finally said you're going to die, and then uh, he went to a Pentecostal church and he got healed like in one day, boom, totally healed of the Hodgkin's disease, only to about nine ten years later die of a, of a crazy brain cancer that. Caused him to have strokes, okay? The whole left side of his body paralyzed for a number of months. Loss of swallowing, reflex, ability to go to the bathroom, all those kinds of things. Suffering. Now, my dad was my hero. Uh, he was super buff, super ripped, really good cowboy, so handsome, just could do everything really well. I just was like, I want to be like my dad, you know? And, uh, and, and yet he died when he was 47 years old. But from the point he got cancer, to his funeral, and then, of course, after, the Lord used all of these trials as an occasion to share the gospel with people. And he just took advantage of it. He just preached the gospel with everyone that he could. So much so that on the day of his funeral, I got to share the gospel and tell my dad's testimony. And many people came to Jesus through my dad's suffering testimony. And it's this, we need to look at this in the same light, what we are going through. Uh, there's a helpful article by Moses Lee on what the early church can teach us about the coronavirus. The early church was no stranger to plagues and epidemics and pandemics. And uh, one of the main catalysts for the church's explosive growth was a plague that occurred in Rome and in the Roman Empire in the first centuries. And um, the church had this great posture in the Roman society that caused even pagan Roman emperors to commend the Christians and to tell their own people to act like the Christians. Okay, why don't you be more like the Christians, okay? And um, in AD 249 to 262, that Western civilization was uh, devastated by this major plague And the city of Rome was said to have lost an estimated 5,000 people a day at the height of its breakout. Now, there was an eyewitness there. His name was Bishop Dionysius of Alexandria. And he wrote that the plague did not discriminate between Christians and non-Christians. Christians Christians got the plague, but he wrote that it was far less on the Christians. Okay, it kind of goes with that psalm that we were reading, kind of working through that and reasoning through that, I uh, said its full impact fell on non-Christians, um, and he ended up writing, at the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away. And fled from the dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead. This is non-Christians treated those with the plague this way. So at first onset of the disease, non-Christians would push the sufferers away and would flee from their dearest family member, throwing them into the road before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape Um, a century later the emperor julian attempted to uh, curb the growth of christianity by telling his uh, people to uh, have uh, to establish pagan charities that mirror the work of christian charities so another plague comes Christians man they're serving they've got charities for the sick and he says come on guys let's get a charity together that's in our own pagan religion so that we can you know have a stronger religious growth than those Christians uh in an AD 362 letter the emperor julian complained that the hellenistic needs that's a greek need um we needed to match the christians in virtue Blaming the recent Christian growth on their, quote, benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead and the pretended holiness of their lives. And he would go on to write for it is a disgrace that the impious Galilean Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. So early church history says that, man, the Christians were just shining in pagan lands by the way that they were loving on other people who were suffering, even non-believers, and it was, it was a testimony in that day. Uh, Julian would question the motive of Christians, but he was embarrassed over their own uh, standard of serving the sick and the poor. A uh, man who wrote The Rise of Christianity, Rodney Stark, said that for all that Julian urged pagan priests to match these Christian practices... There was little or no response because there were no doctrinal basis or traditional practices for them to build upon. So, you know, we have the gospel and we have the hope of the word and the the imperative for Christian kindness and love and benevolence. But they didn't have that in their pagan, you know, uh, religions. And so they just didn't know how they didn't have the motivation. They didn't have the power to lay down their lives for those who had the plague and those who were sick. Um, And so if the non-Christian response was tossing people into the road and just distancing yourself from them, um, there was self-protection, there was selfishness, there was self-preservation, they wanted to avoid getting this plague at all costs. Well, the Christian response to this plague in the early church was the exact opposite of that. Um, Dionysius would write that the plague served as, listen to this schooling and testing for christians and like jesus says it'll turn out as an occasion for testimony and it serves as schooling and testimony and then in detail he writes about uh, how christians responded to the plague in alexandria and he writes that the best among them honorably served the sick until they themselves caught the disease and died He wrote, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains of like what paul says in galatians bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the love of christ that's what they actually took it upon themselves and died in peace and serenity uh, pontius's biography of cyprian the bishop of carthage writes of how the the bishop reminded believers to serve not only fellow christians but also non-christians during the plague cyprian is said There is nothing remarkable in cherishing merely our own people with the due attentions of love, but that one might become perfect who should do something more than heathen men or publicans, one who overcoming evil with good and practicing a merciful kindness like that of God should love his enemies as well. Thus, the good was done to all men, not merely those of the household of faith. So two things can be taken away by the early church. Number one, Christian sacrifice for their fellow believers stunned the unbelieving world as they witnessed a communal love like they'd never seen before. And the second thing the early church teaches us is that Christian sacrifice for non-Christians resulted in an early church exponential growth and revival among non-Christian survivors. So the way that we treat this pandemic right now, the way we love on the people around us, and the way that we are a, the fragrance of Christ among those who are perishing can lead to explosive church growth, not only at Calvary Prineville, but for the kingdom of God, saving men and women's souls and eternities and giving God glory that's due his name. This could very well turn out as an incredible occasion for testimony. Now, the next thing that Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse that I want to point out anyways is in verse 19 of Luke 21. It's a very simple phrase. By patience, possess your souls. We got Antichrist coming on the scene left and right. We got earthquakes happening all over the place. It's only getting more and more. It's like birth birthdays. We got uh, famines and pestilences and persecutions and hey, hey, hey. Be spirit filled. Fruit of the Spirit is patience. Let patience possess your soul. Patience enduring. Let it just possess you. Let it just acquire you. Let your soul, and the word soul is psychos. Yes. Some of you are acting like psychos in this whole thing, okay? Let's detach a little bit. Take a few steps back. Look at the broad picture of all that we're learning today. Realize God's doing something bigger here. It's not just about me and my family, us four, no more, shut the door, you know? You really want to just be the four of you living on the earth in the end anyways? Like, Come out of your bunker and like, we made it. There's a lot of complications that come with that. I'll let you do the math. Okay. Stop being a psycho. But it really speaks of your psyche, your inner self, your person, your breath. Be filled with the spirit in this time. Dwell in the secret place of the most high. Dwell in his shadow. Just commune with God. Let him affect your behavior in this time so that we can be the aroma of Christ to those who are perishing. Look at Psalm 27, four and five. One thing I've desired of the Lord, that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion in the secret place of his tabernacle. He shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. Let patience possess your soul. Psalm 27, 13, I would have lost heart unless I'd believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Psalm 57, 1, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me in the midst of the coronavirus, for my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wing, I will take my refuge or make my refuge until these calamities have passed by calamities there it's another word for pestilence and disease but it speaks of destruction and threat and misery you guys i really think that this coronavirus it's really just the preparation of all the things that we endure as christians and all that we're going to go through in this year right this may last a month two months three months six months whatever but you guys I think all of this can apply to just everything we're going through in life that's difficult. We've got an election coming up that's, that's crazy. We've been going through these democratic primaries, and guys, we have not represented Jesus well. You know, we, we have not represented Jesus well. We have not used democratic primaries as an occasion for testimony. We have not let patience possess our soul, Okay. Um, you know, we're putting memes out of you know of some of these politicians and the way they look and we're making fun of their appearances and you guys, we're being rude and crude. Okay. We're not representing Jesus. We're not doing it with the with the presidential uh um debate, you know, and the debates that are coming up. Guys, we can be an opportunity. this can be an opportunity to shine for Jesus. Let's do it, okay, for the glory of God. Let's use this coronavirus as a way to testify of Jesus, let patience possess our souls. There's just four things that I'm thinking of as I'm thinking of, you know, what I'm calling coronavirus Sunday. Number one, love your neighbor. Okay, love your neighbor. And in the Olivet Discourse, these are neighbors that are going to betray you and bring you up before kings and authorities. They're They're not loving you, they're hating you. Well, if they were loving you, you wouldn't have to be told to love them back. I love everyone who loves me. Love the ones that are betraying you, the ones that are buying all your TP and hand sanitizer and that are just being jerks in the checkout line. Don't grab them by the hair and start a cat fight in the diaper aisle. Don't do that. That's doing human bad, as Ben Shapiro says, okay? Don't be a bad human, okay? Love your neighbor. Reach out to your neighbor. Care for your neighbor. Be sacrificial with your resources to your neighbor. Number two, ornament the the gospel. Use this as occasion for testimony. Number three, submit to the governing authorities. We're going to talk about that in a second. So let patience possess your souls in the calls that the government is make, are making. Okay? These things will turn out as a furtherance of the gospel. Fourthly, trust the Lord. Seek the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Okay? Let patience possess your soul. In 2 Chronicles 16, King Asa was a great king. He was one of the good kings of Judah in the midst of a lot of bad kings. So Asa is kind of a shining light, but he doesn't finish well as a king. Uh, It says in verse 12 of 2 Chronicles 16, In the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet and his malady was severe. Not, not good. He got the gout or he got something like it. Something really bad going on. Yet in his disease, he did not. it be good to go. All right. So Asa, incredible king. There's a guy that works at Lumberman or at uh, Par Lumber. His name's Asa, right? I remember she being like, Asa, you know, your name is in the Bible? He's like, Oh, yeah, he was a king that feared the Lord. I'm like, Right on, you know. Uh, and yet, in the end, he got this foot disease, hoof and mouth, or something of the sort. And as one of these great God fearing kings, he doesn't even seek the Lord about it, just goes to the physicians. And what a great testimony. Let's go to the Lord. About our diseases, of our pestilences. I kind of hop, skip, skip, hop, hop, um, leapfrogged over this governing authorities and this the respect that ought to be there in this time. Uh, go to Romans 13, 1 through 7, okay? Classic passage on submission to our governing authorities. And by the way, this is written to the Romans, who, by the way, their government was. On, on, on scale, far more pagan, far more severe, a lot more wicked. I mean, we're, we're getting there, you know. But there was, there was some major paganism and practices there. And so, if he can say it to the Romans, he can say it to us. Let every soul be subject, submissive, and line up under governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. You might underline that. There's no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So... Donald Trump, you may not love him, but he's been put there by God, okay? So we pray for him in the same way we prayed for Barack Obama, okay? We pray for him, we intercede for him, and we show a level of reverence and honor there in the same way that we should give and have given to Barack Obama, okay? Um, And uh, we believe that these men were put there by God. And the next president that comes, his appointment will also be there by God, so... Whoever resists the authority, and let me just go a step further, Kate Brown, put there by God. Okay, so as Christians, we have a mandate in the scripture to honor Kate Brown, to pray for her. Doesn't mean we got to roll over and just let wicked things go by. We can still use our processes that God's given us to stand up for truth and light and life. But we ought to love her and we ought to pray for her. And frankly, the Kate Brown flush her down campaign, it's wrong, okay? You're doing human bad, okay? You're doing Christian bad. Kate Brown, pray for her, okay? Intercede for her that she might be saved like Saul of Tarsus was saved. He, was, he said, I was the chief of sinners. Well, man, if, if the Lord can save Saul, like that's an example for Kate Brown, Pray for Kate Brown, okay? And as these people have major weight on their shoulders to make huge decisions, we pray for them. And if you resist those authorities, you resist the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For he or she is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but because of conscience sake for because of this, you also pay taxes for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs are due. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Okay? Um, you know, all of these, like, things of, of decisions that are having to be made. And we are so critical. We're so critical. It doesn't matter who makes it. Man, you get from this side and from this side. And guys, instead of being critical, Pray. See how you can love, see how you can shine, how this can be an occasion for testimony. The same chapter goes on in verse 14, Romans 13, 14. It seems so hard, right? How can I submit myself to these, these people? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans says. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. That's how you do it. Uh, we are wrapping up uh, here. There's an incredible article on the Gospel Coalition. Uh, it's titled, When the Deadly Outbreak Comes... Counsel from Martin Luther and uh, it's it's long. I'm not going to get into it, but he goes through um, what he did during the bubonic plague, which was encourage Christians to go in and care for the people that are suffering, uh, even if it means dying yourself. But he also had contingency and, and compassion there for those that were afraid, those that were just not wanting to die. And and there was compassion in that article as well. There's something uh, good to learn from that. Uh, And kind of in the same vein, Spurgeon, actually it was Nate Wales that posted this last night. I've got a slide from it. Uh, Charles Spurgeon would say, fear to die. This was during a cholera outbreak. Fear to die. Thank God I do not. The cholera may come again next summer. Pray it may not. But if it does, it matters not to me. I will toil and visit the sick by night and by day until I drop. And if it takes me, sudden death is sudden glory. What a great way to to be Christian, huh? to live out Christianity. C.S. Lewis, uh, 72 years ago, wrote an article that has some relevance for us. Only he wrote it uh, about fear of the atomic bomb. Okay, so we can replace the word atomic bomb with coronavirus. This is also a Gospel Coalition helpful article. Um, And it's the article by C.S. Lewis called On Living in an Atomic Age in 1948 with Present Concerns. Here, I'm going to quote from him. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the coronavirus. How are we to live in a coronavirus age? I'm tempted to reply why as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year or as you would have lived in a Viking age when the raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night or indeed as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir sir, or madam, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the coronavirus was invented, or wherever it came from. And quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics, but we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by the coronavirus, Let that bomb come when it comes. (laughs) Find us doing sensible and human things, praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. A microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. Closing out with uh, Dr. Miguel Nunez, who is a pastor for 35 years and also a doctor and head of infectious diseases. Uh, Miguel Nunez writes, without a doubt, we must be prudent and responsible, both in observing the recommended measures and also maintaining our health. The world population seems to be in panic, but for Christians, it's important to emphasize that there's no reason to experience such anxiety, especially when we consider that the God of the heavens and the earth is the same God who controls every microbe, atom, and molecule. This is a good time for Christians to demonstrate sanity, peace, and hope recognizing that our lives do not depend on the entry of a microorganism into our bodies. Instead, it depends upon the God who determines the beginning and the end of our history on earth. The Apostle Paul calls us not to be anxious for anything. We can call Christians to peace in the worst circumstances because of God's sovereign control over his creation. Johnny, you want to come on up and we'll close in a song here Uh, and close in a quote by Mr. Rogers, of course. Not this one, uh, but a different one. He says, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. Let's be the helpers in this age. Huh? Let's be those who see this as an opportunity for testimony. Let peace possess your soul Let's be a light. Let's be vigilant and open-eyed as to how we can help, how we can be there for the elderly and the, the immunocompromised in our church. You don't get to be around fellowship as much. Let's extend grace. Let's speak hope. Let's speak life. Let's pray instead of be critical. Let's let the Lord, I heard one pastor say, let's let the Lord milk this mess. All right, let's let the Lord bring something good out of what the enemy meant for evil. Let's stand together.